Hi, and welcome to A Hero's Journey, a literary podcast. I'm your host and judge, Jack, and I'm here with my loquacious librarian friends. This is Alex. And I'm Zach. And each week we look at a new book through Joseph Campbell's monomyth. This week we're looking at The Starless Sea by Aaron Morgenstern, which follows a graduate student by the name of Zachary Ezra Rawlings, who goes to a... uh, a college on the East Coast, and he is a video game design and storyteller graduate student who analyzes how stories are told specifically through video games. Uh, he comes across a book in the library, something uh, old, something that doesn't really make a lot of sense. And within this book, he reads a tale of himself from his childhood in which it describes a psychic son, which is Zachary, uh, coming across a, a beautifully painted door that if he had just reached out and walked through it, he would have found himself in a magical place. But Zachary passed it by for fear of the unknown. And uh, this tale, Zachary reads in this book about himself, and it's very surreal. And it launches him into a series of uh, fantastical, e- launches him into a series of fantastical escapades. Uh, with intrigue, secret societies, uh, and what many would call magic. Uh, He finds himself in an underground library in which the collective consciousness of humankind storytelling exists and finds him interacting with the myths uh, from the very stories that seem to... and finds him interacting with the very uh, figures of myth coming straight from the pages of the stories that he reads. He has more than his fair share of dangers along the way, uh, but eventually survives the outcome, and comes out better for it. Let us begin where all truly great call to adventures start, with seeing a door as a child, not when you remember slash read about it as an adult. Buckle in, folks. Some of this novel makes no sense. It's very true. So the adventure in this story doesn't really become clear until a little bit later in the book, but it's going to be completing this story of fate and time that is laid out in the epigraphs before the chapters. The call to adventure for Zachary Ezra Rollins is seeing this door as a child. Now, unfortunately, he walks past the store and refuses that call for many years until he is an adult and reads about himself walking past that door on his way home from a book. And in a little bit of an odd thing, I think that that book is The Mentor. The book reintroduces Zachary to this magical world, or I guess introduces him to this magical world for the first time, and gives him some information and clues about what's going to happen. Um, The book tells him a little bit of his future, but not enough that he knows exactly what's going to happen so it provides him some help and it's very mystical oddly i think it fits the role for crossing the threshold i want to point out when zach steals a book from allegra and the collector's club and then goes through the door to the starless sea for the first time there is clear danger from the collector's club who are chasing after him and dorian and are very threatening to them 
And Zachary is entering into this world through this door and down the elevator that he has never been to before, although he does know a little bit about it from the book that he has read. And for the belly of the whale, after Zachary gets off the elevator, he rolls the dice and gets all hearts and then drinks the magical liquid to fully enter the Starless Sea and uh, enter the world of the quest. This is the final separation. He's not read about this specific task in the book that he had before him. And he has to plunge headfirst into this. Mm-hmm. And he has to be willing to accept the change from ha- that he knows is going to come from having read Sweet Sorrows. First off, I want to preface that we're going to be discussing the quote-unquote hero today um, as Nega Zachary. Um, he's the I am stereotypical, normal, good Zachary. And this, this, no, no, you're Zach Prime. This, oh, yeah, this is Zachary uh, 0.2. And um, anyway, your adventure, I think you've... We don't really argue about the selection of the adventure points, and therefore I have no obvious problems with it. But moving right into your call to adventure, I don't believe that had Zachary Ezra Rawlings gone through the door as a child, he would have been able to complete the adventure that you've set him out on to complete this quest. We find out why that is for a myriad of reasons later in the actual story, but had he been present for the downfall of the library from the beginning, from when he was a child, he talks about how, oh, I missed out, I missed out on this and that, but he also mentions how he would have been here for the downfall and he wouldn't be playing the role that he is, quote unquote, today. And so I think it's interesting because this is the main time, at least from my uh, remembrance, that... I just don't like a call to adventure because the ultimate goal could not have been accomplished had he actually taken his call to adventure. See, that's a very interesting point. There, There is a second call, if we want to say that, where, where Zachary gets the book. And I picked this first one because it has a very clear refusal. But you're right. There, there are a lot of points in, in the book where it's, it's made very clear that Zachary was intended and supposed to walk past the door. But that seeing the door for the first time is definitely a call because without seeing the door for the first time, he would not have been Zachary. Well, then he discovers the magic book that talks about, I don't know, that time he went, ice skating as a kid yeah right he needed he, the, he needs to see the door to have it haunt him when he rereads the book it's it's it need to have happened but if he had actually I, accepted the call then we wouldn't have had the adventure yes but i think because this is an ode to storytelling in of itself it's a call that ha- the call is 20 years long with an intermittent refusal and I think that's intentionally designed to be the most clear call and refusal that you can possibly get. But because we're jerks who spend our free time analyzing this shit, it actually makes it more confusing to us. Well, that's my argument for both the 
call and the refusal because I think you could have one of these things be is a hero, but not both. And I have no problem with it being refusal because it is obviously a refusal, but I just don't think it's a refusal to the actual call to the adventure that we're trying to say the hero is on. But um, Jack's made his feelings clear. So we'll move on to... Um, to our listeners, I have checked them both off as is a hero. Uh, I understand where Zach is coming from, but ultimately, I think I made my opinion clear. So that takes us to something where I think you're grasping for straws just a hair in that if anything this book is the talisman if it's anything at all it's the talisman that the mentor is supposed to give to somebody um it is the thing that you know provides some amount of guidance um in the quest i see no way in which it is itself the mentor it is not compelling him to read it through magical means it is not, you know, talking to him in any particular way. In fact, quite a bit of the Sweet Sorrows narrative is about things that don't have extreme relevancy, both in the current time for the character or in the future. And so I think while, you know, the book was the best chance you had at a particular mentor in this story, uh, I just don't think it fit the bill. Yeah, this was a hard one for me. Uh, there are several characters that have influence over Zachary, but uh, aside from the book, and I think you're right, uh, it, it's more clear now when you say this that the, the book is the talisman the mentor was supposed to give him. Um, I was trying to find something like a character giving him the book, and the book fits the best for me, but I, I entirely understand that the book is not a person uh, who is mentoring. For the crossing of the threshold, I think you've done a fairly good job of showcasing a situation in which Zachary finds himself in danger, as well as crosses a physical threshold through the stone in Central Park um, that through a fantastical means. So I'm fairly ready to concede this point, but I think it's interesting from kind of an analysis perspective that his threshold doesn't happen earlier, for example, when he's at the Secret Society fundraiser party a literary party in which he experiences quite a few odd things, uh, one of which kind of read like a, like a bad drug trip. This story is hard to pin every point down somewhere in the hero's journey. Typically, we, we are able to do that by extending our road of trials time. But I think it's very clear that there is this, the known world, and then Zachary literally goes through this portal to the unknown world, the world of the quest. So uh, there was a lot of this book that I had a hard time finding a point in the journey for, including that party and his whole like research session where he was looking at the books and trying to find out where Sweet Sorrows came from and who the author is and uh, what J.S. Keating is. And that's true. And that research period actually proves to be very impactful later in the book, not only with the knowledge that it imparts to Zachary, but how it affects secondary characters within the story and kind of leaves a trail of breadcrumbs as to what he did. So for your belly of the whale, I don't see Zachary, and maybe you can elaborate a bit more, actually undergoing any sort of change. He's an individual who 
views his life in no small way as a video game. He talks about you know, different times in his head narrative. Is this the side quest or the main quest? Oh, I have to do inventory management. And when he's faced with these dice and with this drink me potion, it just seems to fit with his way that he's viewing the entire scenario that is his life at this point. And so I don't think this is a point where he experiences significant change as a person to kind of welcome himself into this magical world. Um, Thoughts. So the belly of the whale is the point where the hero is accepting of this change. And I think that it, this is going to be probably a stretch and a hard thing for me to argue, but the change that Zachary is willing to undergo is to accept that magic is real and that there is a greater world underneath him that he hasn't experienced yet. So I think you're right. He does treat this kind of like a video game, but I think that Zachary realizes that this is the main quest and he's willing to continue down that road into this magical world and the changes that are going to be, that are going to be coming from being in the magical world. Yeah. I just think that's a bit of a stretch. I, I like to see our characters in this particular phase of the story have what I would almost consider a mini realization of the situation in which they find themselves and I feel like he's halfway between, you know, this is all just some sort of dream I'm going to wake up or, oh, this just kind of makes sense because this is how I view the world. It, it fits very much with my worldview. And I don't think either of them present him with an opportunity to be cognitive of the changes that are happening and therefore accept them as a changing dynamic of his life. But I think that's at the end of the day up to Jack. So, Zach, I think there is this moment where Zachary is willing to accept the change, and that's drinking that mysterious liquid. Um, Maribel later tells him that you don't have to drink it. There are people who pour it out or just dump it over the side somewhere, and they can still enter the world. They just they just don't stay long. And I think that does it for me. I think that really does show that there is... It's not beating somebody to death in the floor of a cave and being reborn, but it is certainly still a point of no return. Or something our character views as a point of no return. I was return. gonna say, if you're gonna argue that, then let me loose, because the immediate thing that the guy does when he goes through the next door is say, get the hell out of here. Brings us to our close on the departure here. And the only point we're missing is the mentor, because non-sapien artif artifacts not really great at the teaching you lessons with an authoritative fatherly tone. Moving on to our initiation, we begin our road of trials where really, I think all true road of trials begin with finding notes and the queen of bees. So the road of trials in this story might seem like uh, the side quest to a video game when you first look at them, but I think that this is where Zachary really develops his character and advances the story, uh, even though it, it might not appear to at first. So like Jack said, the first 
the first trial is going to be this note to find the queen of bees and eventually finding her, giving her the note and getting more information, including a note to find the man lost in time. So that is the second road of trial to find uh, Simon Keating. And the third trial is Zachary sharing his story with Maribel as all acolytes do as their final test to be accepted into the Starless Sea. So the change that Zachary undergoes during these trials is to fully accept this magic, as I kind of alluded to on our belly of the whale, and also to become a acolyte, uh, getting the key mark on his chest at the end after he shares his tale. For our meeting with the higher power, I want to focus in on Maribel. She provides him with a gift that is useful later, her key to the Starless Sea. And she is definitely a higher power as she is the embodiment of fate. Now, for the Temptress, I think there are two points. Uh, one is fairly weak. It is for Zachary to give up and return home. However, there is a point in the story where I think that this temptress becomes much more real. And that's when he is left Maribel and he's walking through the lower depths of the starless sea. And he sees visions of himself back in the normal world, living a normal life. Um, these visions are explained by the moon talking to Dorian later. She says, you will not be able to trust anything you encounter. There are things in the shadows, whether they are God or mortal or story once, they are something else now. They will tailor themselves to suit you so they might pull you from your path. And Dorian replies, to suit me? And the moon says, to frighten or confuse or seduce. They will use your thoughts to ensnare you. We exist at the edges here of what you might call a story or myth. It can be difficult to navigate. Hold tightly to what you believe. So when Zachary is walking through these same depths and sees these same shadows, he is tempted to forget about the starless sea to live in this siren song. For our atonement with the creator, I can't think of a better point than when time gives a blessing to Zachary as he is about to journey down further into the starless sea, into these depths. And Maribel even says, this blessing is going to be helpful. We need all the help we can get. For apotheosis, Zachary realizes that Maribel has been manipulating him this entire time to die in her place, to complete the story, and reset the Starless Sea. And for our ultimate boon, we have this happening. Zachary meets the bees who have been the kitchen and completes the story of fate and time. And for anyone who, uh, you know, that long. maybe somehow is still trying to follow this despite not reading the book, God help you if you actually are doing that. <laughs> Can you explain what you mean by the bees that were the kitchen? Uh, <laughs> because sure. that sentence out of context, I realized is just objectively ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, so while... Zachary is staying in the Starless Sea, the uh, library at the harbor. He sends notes to the kitchen that are providing him with food and clean clothes. You've talked about how in the Road of Trials, it's creating a Zachary that is more open to the experiences that he's 
undergoing here in the library and on the Starless Sea, and that its ultimate end game of the trial is to make him an acolyte in such that somehow this role as an acolyte of the of the harbor will allow him to succeed on his quest had he not undergone these trials. Hence the purpose of the road of trials. But a couple problems I have with that. One, I don't see a situation that arises for the rest of the story in which him specifically being an acolyte actually helps him accomplish the ultimate boon. I see it as, you know, this is a nice nod to to the history of the place that he's in. And he realizes that, you know, the two chairs across from each other are reminiscent of that ceremony and the key as its symbol. But he's not really intended to be a key. He's intended to be a heart, hence why he rolled all hearts on the dice. And he doesn't actually give anything up at the end of his initiation like the rest of the Acolytes do, for example, their ton. So I just have a hard time reconciling all that. So two things against this. Uh, the first, on this sort of trials, part of it is finding the man lost in time, and that is necessary to get him unlost in time for the story to be complete. And also, when Zachary becomes an acolyte, he does give up something, uh, which you've kind of just made me realize while we were talking about it. He gives up his heart to become an acolyte, and that is actually part of what completes the story because he is dying in place of fate for the meeting with the higher power i understand entirely why you've chosen mirabelle as a higher power as the literal embodiment of fate and giving him something that ends up proving useful can this person be the higher power if they're so intertwined with both the creation and eventual outcome of the quest Because essentially what Mirabelle is doing as the higher power is creating the need for the quest, the person to go on the quest, giving the person who's on the quest the tools to do the quest, and ensuring that they don't fail. So they take this higher power is taking a lot of agency away from Zachary in order to accomplish her own goals. And if we look at almost like it was his fate or something and can we use can we use that can we use that fate is if she's pulling all the strings is zachary really doing anything uh counter counterpoint before we dive into alex's much more legitimate argument um can she be the higher power when he is just kind of both a stand-in for her and also ultimately her kind of that i made a joke about mine but is that actually a more legitimate argument is are they if you wrap your free will argument into it zach at the end is there a different is this just himself kind of i mean at the end of the story when he's like at the dollhouse he is very against what's happening. You know, I don't want this to happen. I'm, I don't want to do the sacrifice. You know, I want to be in the real world, but he doesn't, that choice isn't afforded to him. 
I think that this discussion is going to just come down to, do we believe Zachary has free will? If Zachary has free will and Maribel giving him the key helps him on the quest, but it, it's not setting him on this path that he is in unable to stray from ever that he's always going to have done and always will do. And I don't think that there is a easy answer. I think it's just whichever, whichever way you feel, if you, you feel that Zachary it, has yeah. free will, what? Yeah, you're right. It's however the reader wants to interpret it because yeah. for example, she, he couldn't have completed the quest if he hadn't gone through that seventh door that was hidden. Right, but he couldn't have gotten into that door if he didn't have Mirabelle's key. So, did yeah. he choose the door to go through, or did he only have the ability to go through the door because of the actions of fate? You decide. But seriously, no, I I, I don't have a concrete answer to that, and I don't think we're gonna get one. So, I think that there is actually at the end. Some hint that Zachary doesn't have a lot of free will, that fate has a lot of control. I was getting ready for that, which she pretty much yeah. says, uh, and he thought I wasn't going to give him a happy ending. Yes. Moving on to the Temptress, you've I'm going to ignore the going home and forget it, because I think he flirts with that so loosely that it it's not a true temptation and it's not unique. So that's not the one I want to argue against here. In fact, I don't particularly want to argue against the second, mainly because I think it's such a good example, and it might be almost a direct link to the Greco-Roman siren song, as you mentioned. You know, it's it's this idea of a of a reality that isn't true that the hero is experiencing but is finally able to break through it it could come straight out of a greek tragedy and as such i have no problem this being a temptation i think it's probably the strongest point uh in our tale uh in its entirety whereas if we look at the atonement with the creator i understand that time is extremely powerful and is one of the you know higher beings of this world but I don't think that the Keeper holds the ultimate power in Zachary's life. If anything, it's Mirabelle. If anything. But he's not particularly a father figure for Zachary. In fact, most, you know, in the beginning, he's extremely disdainful of him. And throughout, he's cordial. But he's not particularly insightful or guiding and the only time in which he shows really any interest in the end point of what zach is doing is when it directly relates to his love fate in which then he blesses him to help him achieve that goal but it's never really about zach it's always about fate for the keeper something that we see by the fact that he keeps a library of tales of every reincarnation of her it's it's not about Zach. And that's where I think the story starts to unravel to a story about Zach to being a story where Zach is being used for the purposes of time and fate. So that's interesting. But I think that you've highlighted something that makes this... that works in my favor. The Keeper is only really interested in fate. You're correct. And the blessing on Zachary is what allows him to 
get fate back forever instead of being ripped apart again. Okay, well, so, let me stop you there because what you've said is that this blessing allows Zach to do the thing that he needs to do, which would imply by the nature of that quote that there is still more that needs to happen in the story, a significant amount. It's not descending action at any point, And that therefore the whole journey has not been coming to this moment. This is not the, 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 the ultimate or even the penultimate moment. He still descends down into the quote unquote Hades and confronts many other challenges, including his own ultimate demise. Therefore, if we look at our definition of the atonement with creator, this is the center point of the journey. All the previous steps have been moving in a place and will flow out from it. Uh, nah. For your apotheosis, I think this is a really nice one. I don't think it fits our tale quite as nicely as the temptress does. But for the primary hero to realize that he's the sacrificial lamb is very nice from a story perspective. It's not nice for Zach, but it is somewhat... It, it is somewhat of a revelation for us as the reader. You know, you could have tried to infer it and figure it out from the beginning, especially with how the mention of the heart was so prolific. But I like that about the time Zach realizes it is the time that the author intends the reader to realize it. And I like those sort of apotheosi because it doesn't allow the reader much time to be frustrated with the ineptitude of the hero. Um, so I, I don't have any particular problem with this one. Whereas I feel like we take the ultimate boon in this story and we, we've kind of stretched it thin in that the term, you know, the whole purpose of the journey to be completing the story is so nondescript and fluid that you could not help but complete it just by the story existing. And since this entire tale, this entire confusing Starless Sea book is a tale about tales and a book about books, the fact that the story continues beyond this completion of the story therefore invalidates this as the completion of the story. Completing the story is the ultimate but there's still a return to have, and that happens in all of our stories. The interesting thing about this particular story is that Zachary achieves the ultimate boon not for himself, but for someone else. Fate and time. This is their ultimate boon, and the ending of their story is here. So I think one of the primary problems I have with the ultimate boon, and in some relation, the apotheosis, is that Zachary's apotheosis is that he is the scapegoat. He's been manipulated, in your own words, to die for fate. And it's not something that he chooses. He becomes aware of it, and then he is killed, sacrificed, what have you, by Dorian, the person he cares most about, 
through the manipulation of Dorian's mind and the fact that he was greeted by multiple incar- uh, multiple fake siren songs of Zachary and he's been just slaying them indiscriminately and then he actually comes across the real one. So it all works out where it's not Zachary who's defeating the beast or gaining the magic scepter or, or you know, um, sacrificing himself in a meaningful way like we saw with Gideon of the Ninth. It's oh no, I was killed, that's all I needed to do, was to do nothing, was to die. And so I think that just takes away not only a little bit of Zach's agency, but also shows quite a bit of emotional trauma from the side of his love interest, Dorian, um, and makes him a little less of a hero in my eyes. So Zachary dying is, it is a manipulation. That's That's totally true. But it's also something that I think he would have done had he known what was going to happen. Hmm. Completing the story for Time and Fate is a goal that he had and he's accepted throughout this quest. And I think it's interesting for him to complete the quest and get the ultimate pivot from someone else. This is not something that's happened before, except for Gideon, as you brought up um, and the stories we've talked about. I think that that is something interesting completing completing the quest for someone instead of yourself makes zach less selfish than some other characters that we've discussed so zachary has become very invested in this story as we've progressed zachary is a lover of stories as we know from his studies in college and he has been working to finish this one and his reading of it and his telling of it to Maribel, I think that there is uh, just a small inference we have to make to see that he would sacrifice himself to complete that story. I think that's somewhat invalidated by the his own shock at his own death. We talk about how when he actually, well, the book tells us that when he does die, he's greeted with such dismissal, like, oh, this is this is death. I died. Why did I die? Realization moment. Yada yada. And so, I don't like the idea that we can infer that the hero would sacrifice himself, especially when it's not an option even given to him. But I do like the fact that the ultimate boon is received by somebody who's not him. So, I think it it comes down to to which you value more as being heroic in our analysis. I think that's sort of the fascinating, uh, fascinating crux of what this ultimate boon means. I'm going to say that it does meet Campbell's steps or does meet Campbell's definition for the step. Uh, an ultimate gift is received and it is what our hero was unknowingly working towards knowingly unknowingly working towards question mark um i think you could say he's knowingly working towards it without being aware of the sacrifice that has to be made right and there's some question as to whether that will fight well i think we'll find out as we dig into his return of whether that uh, whether that lack of knowledge really under undermines the completeness of his journey, but he certainly up until this point completes somebody else's 
story. Uh, except that they're clarifying for the end here. Uh, the Atonement with Creator was not awarded because I don't feel like the emotional heart of the story is attached to a, the creator figure in the slightest. But there is too clear a creator figure to pass it over. And finally, we come to the return, which starts, as we always do, with our refusal of the return. So, the refusal of the turn, return, I think it seems to take place a little bit out of line with the story. Uh, it's the dance with Maribel. So, when Zachary arrives at the bee's castle, the dollhouse, and is talking to them... The story is essentially completed. He is he is at the end of the journey. He is where he needs to be. He has sacrificed his heart. And he doesn't accept that the story is completed. He asks instead to dance with Maribel because he was promised by fate to have this dance. So it's a refusal of the return in that he has essentially completed the quest and refuses to go through with it. Now, for the magical flight, I see this as Zachary getting to the ship that not Eleanor, the the girl who is a bunny in our earlier story, and the mother of Maribel is piloting. So the rescue from without is when Dorian is able to open the box with Fate's heart and give it to Zachary, uh, saving his life. For crossing the return threshold, we have the kiss with Dorian. And this shows obviously that Zachary is alive, but also that he is going to be able to share the story with someone uh, through the rest of his life. Um, now, the Master of Two Worlds this isn't a step that we see essentially what I would want to see for this step is for Zachary to have time in the real world uh, in quotes and also time in the Harbor and in the Starless Sea. But we end a little bit too fast for that to happen. Now for the freedom to live, there is a line from the very, very end of the book it says, inside the brick building, a door opens into a new harbor upon the Starless Sea. This is Cat opening the door, and it's implied from Fate and Time's conversation to let Zachary back through into the real world uh, and to live his life now that he has completed the story that he was in the way that he wants to. So your refusal with a return is a continuation of the story in that he's not refusing to go back. What it would look more like is something we saw, like, for example, with American gods in which the sacrifice has been made and Mirabel comes to pull him back into the real world. And he goes, nah, there's too much suffering and blah, 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 and things that I don't want to go back to. It's much simpler here. We see him fighting actively trying to return to the people he cares about and the real world, the world of life, not refusing it. He asks her questions, wants answers, and then immediately after this interaction with her, 
goes and makes all these decisions to facilitate his escape. He goes to the roof. He looks for the uh, the rowboat and tries to ride the current up. It's it's all showcasing that he's not ready to be done with the story and therefore um, is trying to return. Yeah, so I I understand this. Um, I'm not going to argue. I do want to bring up a quote that I found while I was looking for something to go around this. Um, this is this is a quote from Maribel to Zachary. During she says, dance. "That's yeah." During the dance, she says, "That's not up to that's not up to me, Ezra." Like I said, I don't make things happen. I just provide opportunity and doors. Someone else has to open them. Um, so if you remember our earlier conversation about how we can't tell this is going to be up to reader interpretation if Zachary has free will or not, uh, we were wrong. The book explicitly says that he has free will. Sorry, everyone. Yeah, but wouldn't you, if, if you had control of everything, wouldn't you want fate to like tell you, no, no, don't you worry. You were making all the decisions. So moving on to the magic flight, I think this is specifically with Jack as the judge, a particularly good one. Uh, this is a form of unconsciousness. Uh, what better form of unconsciousness is there than death? And uh, <laughs> He's also being rescued on a sea filled with honey by a magical color-changing color ship uh, that's being captained by a, a fairly mad captain. So um, kudos there. There's a magical flight. And... As far as the rescue from without goes, I would like to be extremely cynical here. I'd like to tell you, this is stupid. It doesn't meet the point. But if we glance over at Campbell's steps that we've defined it as, just as the hero may need guides and assistance to set on the quest, often he must have powerful guides and rescuers to bring them back to everyday life, especially if the person had been wounded or weakened by the experience. And the problem is... That it fits both from Zach's point of view and from Dorian's point of view. In that Dorian can't be rescued him, like by Zach and having their relationship if he doesn't rescue Zach. So they're not they're rescuing each other in a very real sense. At the same time, they've both been hurt. Zach has been manipulated and killed. Dorian has killed the person he cares about. So uh, I don't have anything. <laughs> I like that you brought up that dual uh, dual rescue there. That wasn't something I thought about yet. Yeah, it's just Love like saves them both in the end. Yeah, but um, I don't like your crossing the return threshold. Um, I think if anything, it would be the alluded to opening of the door and returning to quote unquote like the above world, the non harbor, non library. Um, I don't think that the kiss with Dorian really provided what the crossing of the return threshold is supposed to. It's a nice moment for the characters. I just don't think it accomplished what it needed to. Uh, I, I get that because we're still in these this magical world. They're still floating on the sea. It's dangerous. And there is still danger there. The sea is flooding, I guess. I don't know how a sea floods, but that's what it seemed like to me. <laughs> and and here's the other thing as well. We have a third rescue from without in that when 
Kate <laughs> opens the door and lets them back into the real world. She is rescuing them from the place of danger where the sea is rising. <laughs> so we've got okay. we've got all these rescues, but nobody actually crosses into the place. But no one ever they... really gets to go home. The book ends <laughs> beforehand. Yeah, and that's right. essentially what we get to where I kinda I'm gonna combine the crossing of the return threshold, the master of the two worlds, and the freedom flip. We have a hero who we don't actually see come back to the world where the journey started. We see a hero who hasn't inherently showcased any mastery over the underground world. He's solved a few puzzles here and there, but it's nothing that other characters in the story don't themselves showcase. So we can't assume it's any particularly difficult skill. And we don't show him having any... It's not like he receives accolades for this game that he designs when he gets back to the real world or that he shares knowledge of how maybe uh, Zachary was really Joseph Campbell all along and then he writes out how stories are told. Yeah, so I, I was actually trying to concede this step and when I said we don't see it, what I would have liked <laughs> to see. Because you're, you're right, I, I don't think we can make an inference for this that he has mastered the two worlds because we don't know, he might end up staying down in the starless sea for the rest of his life we just we can't tell because we don't see yeah and i think that the implication that he is going to have a happy life from fate does not guarantee it especially with the complications that we've seen to his life thus far he's a human counter argument if fate controls everything yeah. He'll have a happy life, but he won't have freedom. Well, Alex isn't a large allowed to argue. Well, yeah, he doesn't have the freedom to make his own decisions if fate controls everything. Is just a secondary point, but we just don't see it. You know, the book ends. We've got a human who has some sort of quasi magical uh, puzzle fate heart in his chest, and you know is coming out of a of a new magical world that's different than the one that he even started in because it's a new harbor so i just think there's too many variables to properly assign a majority of the return to zachary's journey the only thing i do want to push back on is the freedom to live because we don't really need to know anything beyond that zachary is going to live and he's not going to be manipulated anymore Fate has left him the happy ending, which is that which just is a manipulation. <laughs> He's still getting played like a fiddle. He's just gonna enjoy it this time. You, you guys just don't want to accept that there's free will here. I truly don't think that Zach's life is free of the entanglement and the complications that have been caused by the manipulation of others, even if she stopped manipulating him at that exact moment. So, all right, I'm completely hands-off now. His life is still altered to such a point that the ramifications of that manipulation are going to be felt for quite some time. He, he doesn't get to, he, you know, he's been considered a missing person from the police department for years. He doesn't have... Uh, his graduate uh, degree and all his thesis work, his entire laptop has been wiped by the consortium. I mean, all of his work, it, it's his, he, yeah, he's got a nice new boyfriend and he learned some cool magic things and got a new ticker. But a lot of things that were extremely important to who he is as a person are now irrevocably changed. 
Yeah, I think for me, we're still lacking that freedom to live. I know I get what Al- what you're trying to go for, Alex, but between the amount of damage that his life has received and also just the fact that we're left with this such huge blank that I, I, don't know, I think it still leaves a lot up in the air on all points, whether he has, whether there is free will or not free will aside. I, I think we're given the barest hints that there might be freedom to live, but we don't really have any shape of what that could, what that will, would be or what that it is going to be. Right. We've got, we've got a line saying that his, his, his ending is still going to be happy. So I, I don't know. Actually, I guess that I want to flip that one back to you one last time, Alex. Is that truly enough to you to be freedom to live? Just a promise that our character's ending will be happy? Uh, no, I guess I'm also making the assumption that fate and time and the Owl King are no longer going to be trying to interfere with Zachary's life. We don't, we don't have the promise. That's just the assumption that I am making. I think that's another option for our many, many loyal listeners to let us know what they think about Zachary's freedom to live. Uh, and you can always reach out to us at a hero's journey podcast at gmail.com or at a hero's journey pod on Facebook. And don't forget to uh, leave us a review wherever you are currently listening to this podcast. You magnificent people. You, um, Oh, and very lastly, uh, we are at underscore heroes underscore journey on Twitter. Um, Alex is very active if you want to get a response out of him. And that's going to bring us to a close here on the Starless Sea. With a score higher than I was anticipating of 11 out of 17. Or puts us on the edge of still being a hero. Um, which is honestly not where I was expecting us to get with this book. Um, I was a huge fan of the Night Circus, which meant that I was constantly drawing comparisons, which I think might have undermined really getting lost in this book, though I think that that might, that could also very much not be true because in general, I think this book's considered a bit more of a sophomore slump in comparison to the Night uh, night circus so maybe we aren't all crazy for finding this book a little bit too into itself to really get to its points yeah so like jack i really like the night circus and i thought that this book was good it, it had a lot of potential I like the idea of story within a story and this mystery coming together, but it didn't feel as well put together as the night circus. The night circus had several mysteries and they all coalesced at one time, whereas this had kind of one overarching mystery and then just happened kind of like we talked about without Zachary, the point of view character we've been following throughout the whole thing making a lot of decisions to lead to that end. Um, And I do want to point out, we didn't even touch on the antagonist, um, Allegra, 
or the Owl King, hardly at all. And part of what makes a book and story really interesting to me is when we have a villain, and especially when that villain has motivations that are clear and a little bit understandable. And here, and here, while the motivations might have been understandable, they weren't impactful because we walked through the story essentially mentioning Allegra zero times and the Owl King once. Yeah, which might just uh, might might perfectly, as you're saying, capture what you're going for, which is that we gave what is a complete summary of the core plot of this book and including including the trials, which normally are where the bulk of the plot happens. And even in this case, that's not how if you both of you have had to take a guess, what percentage of the book do you think the literal pages that covered the bits we covered actually occupy? 30 yeah and so sometimes that feels like a good thing when the book's really about something else but in this case i think it left me hollow rather than fascinated anything else alex no that, that was all my thoughts all right let's pass it over to the one fresh perspective who wasn't coming in here demanding the night circus too Electric Boogaloo, Zach. So I didn't particularly enjoy this book, and I'll tell you a couple reasons why. Um, main character is Off's got an awesome name, got awesome hobbies, really likes mythology. You know, he's a he's a character that I think many people who read books very frequently can easily relate to, and the situation in which he finds himself is one that is, I think, one or two steps above the stereotypical Harry Potter-esque magical world introduction. The framing devices of the stories at the beginning of the chapter felt Arabian Nights-esque, but were so self-referencing to the rest of the story that it bogged you down on what was important and what wasn't important. Because you spend the first half of the book thinking that these are framing devices that are just kind of barely insightful. But by the end of the book, you're finding out that the characters that are being discussed in these things that you were slightly ignoring are the mythological beings that are in the primary tale, which was very frustrating. And I liked the premise so much of this underground world of mankind's combined storytelling ability i just felt the execution was off and might i suggest to our listeners if you want a story inside a story that at least left me extremely happy when i can fin- when i finished the book and, and, and very content might i point you towards the never-ending story which has uh, originally written in german um uh but is a um has a really good English translation and a very popular movie, uh, as many people our age knows. But uh, it's a novel by Michael End. So uh, I think it's it has a lot of the similar elements of the way that this story wanted to be written. I just think it was executed uh, a little bit better. All right. And on that note, thank you so much for joining us this week.
I have been your host and judge, Jack. This is Alex. And I'm Zach. And join us next week as we dive into the first half of the Fellowship of the Ring with Rob from Malkier Talks. Yay! Oh, thank you. Yeah. Um, did I explain the bees well enough? Who knows? It doesn't matter. <laughs> it just the phrase the, the bees that were in the kitchen was so so stupid. I had to address it. That's this is too long. Even this, though this I is, died with this them. has got like four marks of punctuation. It was like comma, semicolon, and then like a real colon and then a period. It was that sentence.